0: Hello and welcome to the Irish Fire Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Houghton. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and financial independence enthusiast sharing my financial freedom journey. Stay tuned and welcome aboard. As many of you are probably well aware I've been talking on the last couple of episodes about a property deal that we are hoping to put together at the moment, and I am pleased to inform that that looks like that deal is going to happen. And just a reminder that that is basically we have managed to use the equity from our home to buy a slightly bigger house and be able to then rent out our current house and bring positive cash flow in that way. I will be covering a very specific episode shortly. To give details on exactly how we were able to put that deal together. But in the meantime, I was very fortunate and the timing was very good that I was able to speak with Gavin J. Gallagher, who has 25 years experience as a property manager and developer. And he currently manages and owns the East Point Business Park in Dublin. But he's also worked on hundreds of property deals over the last 25 years. So in many ways, me coming in there worrying about buy-to-lets was somewhat comical, but it really was a good interview, and he has provided a lot of great nuggets of information. There's a lot of great quotes in there that he actually mentions, and I think it's well worth listening to his advice. So uh, without further ado, we will jump over to the interview. And if you do have any feedback, by all means, feel free to get in touch with me at michael at so Gavin, I am delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. I guess if you wouldn't mind, just starting by, I guess, giving a, a little bit of your background and how did you get involved, and um, what are you doing these days?
1: Yeah, I started out as an architect. Um, I qualified in 1997, and um, but I had actually I had gotten involved in property before that because my my father died when I was in college, and I was kind of forced to get involved in the family business. So I started at a kind of young age of 21 and um, got involved in uh, partly in a family business, and then I started kind of basically set up my own architectural practice and started practicing. And there was a there was a kind of a watershed moment when I was working on a um, a project for a client as as my own boss, basically running a small architectural business. And um, I think I spent about nine months working on this project, burning the midnight oil, doing all this kind of work. And at the same time, I was doing a, a very small little investment in a, in a site in, in a scrone in Sligo. And I bought the site for, I think I paid 40,000 um, pounds, the old Irish pounds for it. And um, so it wasn't a huge amount of money. Um, it was an amount that you could kind of accumulate over a space of time. And when I went for planning permission, and I got four houses, planning for four houses on it. And then when I started speaking to builders, the builders actually turned around and just said, you know, we'd like to buy the site off you and we'll pay you 125000 And I can just remember this moment when I went, what? You know, because the job that I was doing as an architect was paying me something like £8,000. And suddenly here in in the space of a couple of months, this property transaction I was doing was bringing in, you know, almost 100000 and I can remember just suddenly realizing that, wow, you know, property, this property business is something else. And so it kind of turned my attention pretty much full on into property investment and development at that stage. So I kind of got into it young uh, because of that kind of experience. And, and it's really it's, I, I would say it served me well for a number of years, but then I made a couple of mistakes in the recession and that cost me quite a lot. So I've kind of, um, I suppose I have a bit of a roller coaster to, to report in terms of my background and my career.
0: And I know that these days, I believe that you're with East Point in, uh, in Dublin. So
1: yeah, we, the family business was a commercial sort of property company. And my dad, when he died, was the chairman, but his brother stepped into the role then afterwards. And I didn't really have a role other than just, you know, making sure that the family's investment was looked after. And, and which is why I went off and I started my own business. But then what happened actually about six years into that is um, my uncle actually um, took his own life. And it was a complete shocker. None of us kind of saw any signs of depression or anything like that. But suddenly over the space of a, a few hours, I was thrown into the deep end and, and had to become a director of, you know, full director of the company. And and then a month later, the CEO that was basically running all of the, the projects and stuff, he died of cancer. And um, he had he'd been fighting it for quite a while, uh, but you know, nobody expected the suicide uh, of my of the chairman and then the death of the CEO in the space of about 30 days. And so myself and my two cousins, we basically joined forces and decided, like we all had individual businesses and roles doing stuff elsewhere. And suddenly the three of us came together to kind of basically steady the ship. And um, so we were in the middle of a project called East Point. And at the time it was a very risky project because it was, it was a large landfill site that was bought um, from the uh, local authority. In fact, it was partly bought from Dublin Port and then partly bought from Dublin City Council. It was, and basically, it, it was it was an old tip that um, it had been a dump or a landfill site for for like twenty five years and. It had reached its fill and it had taken over, you know, a certain amount of the Talca estuary. And we basically bought the land and had to kind of remediate it and then do a lot of stuff. But we decided to turn it into a business park. It would take a whole podcast to kind of explain that. But basically now today, 25 years later, I am the guy that's running the day-to-day operations here in the business park. And it's, it's grown to quite a large business park now with different investors involved and stuff. And we have... 37 buildings we have um, about 50 different corporate occupiers including some large ones like oracle and google and we have on a, on a kind of well before COVID 19 i should say we have what we would have had between eight and nine thousand people a day coming into the park
0: it's quite an amazing story about something that kind of i guess started from almost nothing in terms of it being landfill to to have the vision to uh to put that together so you know fair play well well done in that regard
1: yeah it's i mean it's a it's a team effort obviously it's a, it was um the original ceo and my father were chairman was chairman that they had sort of gone ahead and bought the land and started kind of the the initial plans and they employed uh scott and walker architects to do the master plan but there was there was a couple of years when we were scratching our heads wondering like what would we even build here because landfill kind of basically means straight away that you're not going to be building residential because there's all sorts of health and safety considerations and then we started thinking, well, you know, Dublin Port is one big sort of warehouse kind of uh, sh- lots of sheds and lots of uh, big oil storage tanks and stuff. And we thought, you know, I-, I suppose we could just build another load of sheds and stuff and make it kind of light industrial. And then after that, there w- we decided we actually looked at a project in the UK called Stockley Park, which just opened. And it was very similar and uh, and it kind of inspired us to do something very similar so it's it's basically highly landscaped and there's over one thousand seven hundred trees in east point and uh, like ponds and lakes and also so, so it's, it's a beautiful place and we're very proud of it and, and we're still involved in the day-to-day running 25 years later because we just want to keep this place uh you know in the way it was meant to be I, we, i've seen other business parks around uh, ireland that um They just, they didn't receive the care and attention and they kind of go, they get a bit tired and you start to see people losing interest in being located there. So we want to keep the place as as best as we can.
0: Mm. And look, I I think one of the nice things that you've done, Gavin, is, and I know from watching some of your YouTube videos, is some of the best advice that I think you've given is you need to treat property like a business. A lot of people go into property thinking, oh, yeah, it's going to be a nice passive investment or I don't want to be too involved. And uh, I do know people who are landlords who, frankly, uh, that don't seem to, to give two hoots about their investment property. Is that the first thing that you would say to people is, look, this isn't going to be passive or, or is there something even before then that they should be thinking about?
1: I talk about the, I call them the six oars and um, it starts with roadmap and it's basically having an idea of what you want to do um, with your career and with your life and stuff. And that would would kind of dictate then the type of investor you're going to be because as in my case, I was an architect. So I had some skills in the kind of uh, construction and design area, but there might be people that have absolutely no experience whatsoever in property or in any kind of aspect of construction and those guys just might be out of their depth. So perhaps passive investment is the best way to go about it. But I think if you have skills of a certain type that are maybe useful as a more active investor, and if you're a person who has maybe a network of friends and contacts that could be useful. So in my case, I you know I knew lots of architects, I knew lots of builders, I knew Lots of different people from the professional side of the business. So for me, it wasn't difficult to get advice on on deals, and it wasn't difficult to make decisions because I did have people to kind of ask advice from. And that I think is part and parcel of it. I think if you go into it blind, uh, property can you can lose your shirt in this business. And I've had you know very very painful experiences where I kind of let my guard down and I and I didn't really pay much attention to a certain deal. And it cost me very, very dearly. And um, nowadays, I say, you know, a bit, you know, treat it like a business. Because what some people do is they buy something, and it goes very well. Not necessarily because of something they did, but say the market just rises, and, and they happen, and it happens to lift all boats. And those people suddenly think, wow, you know, I've I've made all this money, and suddenly the lifestyle starts to kind of catch up. And um, and I went down. I made that exact same mistake, and. I I was very fortunate in... um, I bought a couple of properties very, very well. And I guess you would call it lucky um, more so than just me being some sort of genius. Mm -hmm. And um, I I went into the deals with the intention of turning them into something. But then, you know, a couple of months into it, a guy came out of nowhere and just wanted to buy the property and was prepared to pay me more than double what I had paid for it in in only a couple of months. So, you, you know, those kind of experiences... Uh, for an untrained mind can suddenly make you kind of do silly things like go off and buy a fancy car and all this kind of stuff and I I made all those mistakes so I'm trying to one of the reasons I set up my own podcast was to try to kind of guide people in that way and, and make sure that people realize that if you let your guard down if you don't concentrate if you know you can end up in a situation where you really do lose a lot of money and uh, and uh, you know people have gone bankrupt and the worst thing is, is, is not so much the financial side, but it's the stress and strain that it puts on, you know, a, a marriage. My own marriage collapsed during the recession of 2008 um, just from the, the pure strain of having multiple banks chasing me for millions. And, um, and so, you know, it's a difficult thing. I wouldn't rush into it with, a, with your eyes closed. I, I would take this kind of as a, as a serious kind of undertaking and not think that you don't need to do much work.
0: I think one of the things you mentioned there is, is, and I've written written in my notes here, be the deal maker. And I think that's quite powerful. And, and even taking my own case, I have zero DIY skills, uh, Gavin, absolutely none. I can't even get a TV up on the wall, but I do know a great builder who, who put our extension on. I do know great handymen. So as well as that kind of putting a deal together, um, I've got a great mortgage broker and good relationships with, with, with some of the bankers and so on. So that certainly helps as well.
1: The one thing to remember is this is a team business. Uh, it's not all about you. You might be the guy that obviously kind of comes up with the idea and you might originate the deal. The whole business, is it can be very complicated, especially if you go into the development side. Now, I'll leave the development side out, but there are so many things that can go wrong with a deal that you really do need to be quite on your guard and you need to speak to a lot of different guys to make sure you're you're not making a mistake and so things like architects are great to kind of bring on board to to kind of get a steer as to can i improve the house the way you might imagine so you might be able to build an extension you might be able to you know reconfigure it slightly and it might just make the place an awful lot more valuable and then there's other things like knowing whether you have, you know, the zoning is supportive to allow you to sort of build, say, a second house on the, in the garden or things like that. I mean, some some property deals that I've done in the past, uh, you know, and I'm not talking big, huge commercial deals like that I'm involved in today. I'm talking about when I started out, some, some of the small, simple deals actually did very, very well. And it was just about being kind of um, conscientious about what you're doing. And bring in the right kind of team on board to kind of advise you and make sure you're not making any mistakes.
0: I mean, I guess, you know, in, in the financial independence world, we're often told and a, a sort of rich dad, Robert Kiyosaki, will always say, oh, you need to be buying property for cash flow. You know, they, they talk about making sure that the rent covers the the uh, the costs and um, and ideally a little bit more. Now, where I'm from in New Zealand that would never happen right because house prices are so overinflated and the rental market is so much lower that you would virtually never be in a situation you'd almost be down money each month Uh, thankfully in ireland it is possible to actually find uh investments that actually produce positive cash flow is that is that something that you've looked for in your experience or are you more about actually trying to make a gain through redeveloping the property maybe flipping it
1: yeah i mean that's where we where we're talking about the passive versus active um business and When you're an active trader, uh, when you're an active person, then you can decide whether or not you're an investor or a trader. Um, But, you know, passive is where you basically buy a property and you're hoping for that little bit of cash flow benefit. And that's about that's it. You know, there's there's no other you're not talking about rolling up your sleeves and redesigning. You're buying it and it sort of stands to make you a certain amount every month. And that's, you know, and that's that's a respectable thing to do. And a lot of people go ahead and do that. But the stuff that I'm more interested in is, you know, rolling up my sleeves, taking a a sort of fresh look at the property and say, right, if I replace that kitchen and if I extend that rear room and if I build that extra bedroom what will the property be worth? And that is a, you know, there's a lot more involved in that. And I guess there's a greater degree of risk, but you can actually add, you know, 20, 30, 40% to the value of the property. So what that allows you to do then is you can either rent it or you can sell it. Obviously, if you sell it, you know, you, you take cash out and you got to pay some tax on it. Um, if it's your own personal private residence, then you can avoid that tax bit. So I know a lot of people that did that and they... um they spent a lot of time kind of just moving from house to house to house and kept on renovating. And so they never paid any tax, which I think, I mean, you've obviously got to speak to your accountant and see what's a respectable number of times to do that before people start questioning it. But there is um when you're getting into the business of I mean, it's you know, a lot of people just go with it by the name B or or or, you know, the Burr method. And it's, you know, to buy it, to refurbish and then to or, or to redecorate and then to rent and then to refinance and that means that you can take out a, a chunk of equity you've added say you know 30 percent to the value of the property now you can take back your original equity that you put in so your deposit or whatever you can release that back to yourself and you can go out and you can do it a second time so now you have one rental property but you've created the income or the capital gain to go and start again and if you do that in a sensible way you can actually end up with multiple properties over a couple of years that are all paying you rent and slowly but surely you know growing in value and um, i would say that they're kind of washing their face in terms of cash flow you always need to be careful that you know ignoring the fact that interest rates might rise at some stage in the future and so that was something that actually caught me out is that um I, 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 you know, I basically had the property at at a stage where it was exactly washing its face, but we were in a very low interest rate period. And then it started to creep up and it got to the point where I was having to kind of put money in every month and it started to get painful. And I I, I sort of resolved after that never to kind of leave it so tight that that was a risk. I think it's a good strategy to have. And you just have to be careful that you don't use the profits from the equity release um into your hand you don't misuse those because a lot of people think okay i've got 50 grand sitting here what am i going to do with it you know and you let uh, one of the things i talk about as as your your downfall in the property business will be brought about by one of three e's your ego your emotions or the economy and um your ego is the one thing that really damaged me was just my ego. And I would see friends of mine driving a certain type of car and I'd be thinking, wow, I can afford that, you know, and I'd go off and I'd take an equity release and I'd buy myself that fancy car. And that kind of thing is a slippery slope because you don't realize, but you're basically, you're, you're taking payment that is really not due for a couple of years and you're, and you're pulling it forward. So I call that, um, you know, premature reward or, um, it's basically not having the patience and discipline to wait it out, but y- you want the payment right now. You want the gratification right now. And so premature gratification is a big risk in this business, because if if you've managed to do that nice big equity release, sometimes people sort of say, OK, now I can go and splurge on myself rather than reinvest it and put it back in and recycle the capital.
0: Yeah, very much so. And I, I think that the way you probably need to be looking at this is reuse that capital to to buy more property and try and live off the cash flow, I guess, that you ultimately generate from either the rental return or maybe that windfall if you do sell a property then and make sure that you're you're constantly reinvesting that capital by the sounds of it. So yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't mind exploring a little bit more about how you kind of go about some of these deals because I do get quite a lot of questions from people and I know that uh, on some of the financial um, channels that we do have that we're often sharing potential development projects and truth be told most of the most of us don't really have the expertise to even know what a good deal is or not and I know that through various websites like BidX one for example You might often see what looks like a really, really good deal, um, but often you don't know sort of what's behind the scenes. And I guess sometimes it can be hard in Ireland as well because the house might be 100 years old or the the property might be 100 years old and you don't really know what you're going in in for. I mean, is there any solid advice that you could give on somebody that's maybe seeing a potential development uh, project on what they should be looking for, particularly if they don't necessarily have uh, the expertise that the, the, the likes of yourself has being an architect?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I would say is, um, is is thread carefully that um, the first if you if it's if you're going to do your first deal, you want to make sure it's a good experience and that you don't, you know, um, misstep and then that'll be it. You'll be out of the game and you won't want to go back. And um, like most people who have a bad experience, that's the last time they do it. So it's a great business and you can make a very good return and you can you can add to your financial freedom and your independence very easily if you just thread carefully and if you know like the first of thing to remember is that the market is cyclical so there is going to be ups and downs and you a lot of people cannot avoid the moment where it turns down you might be halfway through a construction project and suddenly the market has turned down and you have to finish the project before you're going to be able to sell or do anything so you always have to assume that there's a risk that your your the market could fall so if you build a little bit of that um, into your business model and you kind of say, OK, let's have a look at the three different outcomes. There's there's the very optimistic outcome that everything goes perfectly according to plan and I end up making this nice bit of wedge. And then there's the other side where the builder gets it wrong or we find dry rot in the house or we do something uh, wrong with, and, and the timing goes out or the market changes and you, you kind of you have to be very wary of the fact that things can go wrong in any kind of construction project or you buy an old house i mean first thing is as i mentioned the team is is important if you can assemble a couple of guys around you that um, sometimes the best way to do it is actually to do it as a team is to kind of have partners and, and go in and, and buy things together so if you've got weaknesses. I mean if you're a person that doesn't have the first clue about anything to do with construction and stuff like that but you're good at the financial side and you understand how you know banks work and all that well then maybe the thing to do is to team up with a builder or somebody who who can fill in and be complementary to the other side. Now obviously you can do it all by yourself as well but then you need to find that builder who's going to guide you. Buying an old house can be Difficult. I mean, a hundred years old, yes, you're certainly going to start getting into trouble. I've bought an old period house and um, I I had a house on the Grand Canal and it was a beautiful old house, like built in the 1840s or something like that. And I wanted to turn it into kind of a, a residential property, you know, so somebody could live right in the center of town. And I thought it would be a fantastic property as a rental property for, you know, sort of somebody working for Google or something like that. And I bought it and then I realized sort of when I was into the project that you can't even paint the walls of the property without planning permission because it's a protected structure under the heritage rules. And when you get into that, you suddenly realize, God, you know, this and I had to go and get an archaeologist involved who had to do a big report. And that costs a couple of thousand and it took months of extra time and And then there's all these rules around health and safety. And and so you just, you do need to thread carefully. And I would say, don't be overly ambitious in your first deal. Uh, Go for something a little bit easier. A lot of people try to complicate things and try to do something that's particularly difficult uh, for their first deal. And there's so many moving parts that you just have to, I would sort of caution people to kind of go for something a little bit easier just to kind of wet your teeth. Get yourself into the market um, with a deal, learn how it works. I would suggest that people stay local to where they're from so that they have some of the local knowledge and stuff that if, you know, I went and I bought property abroad in New York and Spain and all these places. And there's a, there's a whole learning curve that it's like starting again when you go abroad. Whereas if you buy in an area that you've grown up in or near to where you've grown up in, you kind of know a lot of the story and the history and you can, you, you also have a good chance of knowing people that live nearby. So you can have some sort of inside knowledge and that's very helpful. Um, Your team is important. Obviously having a solicitor, he needs to do certain checks uh, to make sure that the property isn't, you know, hasn't got any problems with it. You need your architect to examine the property to see if there's any issues with planning Um, historically. You need to probably get somebody to survey the house to see if there's any kind of risk of the electrical. I mean, if you buy a property that has electrical problems, you're going to have to do all of that. If you buy a house that has problems with the plumbing system, you're going to have to do all of that. So, you know, you can't really start a deal until you have some idea what's involved and a lot of the time people go in and say, okay, this looks fine. I'll repaint it and that's it. But then you find as soon as you start painting, you realize that the place has got damp and there's this and that. And a lot of architects and professional surveyors, they've got equipment that they they stick a pin in the wall and it'll immediately tell you if there's damp problems and things like that. So I just think that um, it's probably worth your while being cautious about your first deal and one of the things that I say in my in my own podcast is that 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 first deal is actually probably the best deal that you'll do because you'll get such a a, a tight learning curve you'll really learn a huge amount of the process and you'll be super cautious because you don't want to lose money and you'll probably do more due diligence in that one deal than you'll do in the next one and the subsequent ones and I think people should stay hungry and stay kind of cautious because when I got to a certain stage when I was making kind of lots of money on deals i suddenly got very complacent and i i would look at a deal and say yeah that's and i would kind of go on gut instinct and things and those were just stupid deals that ended up costing me money and so so don't go on gut instinct you know do your research figure out are the adjoining properties you know, good quality, or are they going? You know, is there problems with those? You need to know comparable evidence. Are that what are the houses in that area going for? I get you know I get messages from people and they say, "Gavin, uh, I'm paying 135,000 for a house. Is that a good price?" And they don't tell me the location. They don't tell me a lot of the different things. And I say, "It it, it actually doesn't matter what you're paying. What matters is what did the guy next door pay, and is the house that he has similar." in configuration does it have the same number of bedrooms does it have the same square foot area is it built in the same year all of that will give you a guide and if you can pick out a couple of properties that are similar in age configuration size and all that on the same street say or in that same locality then you have a good idea whether or not you're getting a good price but just picking a price out of thin air just doesn't do it you need to and you also need to know what you're likely to be able to rent the property at. If you, if you can sell it and you can make a nice profit, um, that's great. But what about your fallback? What if you're unable to sell because the market has changed? What are you going to rent it for? You need to have a whole load of questions that you can answer. And the, one of the reasons it's important to be able to answer all that is that if you decide to go to a bank and you want to borrow some money from the bank, they're going to ask you these very questions. And you want to be the guy that looks extremely organized and you want to be the guy that sort of stands up and says, yeah, absolutely. Here's the answers to all those questions. And the bank have confidence in you. They believe that, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. And they'll give you the loan. Whereas if you're there, oh, you know, I didn't realize you're going to ask me that question. Let me go. The guys will start, you know, questioning whether or not you're a safe bet that if you didn't know that, maybe there's a whole lot of other stuff that you don't know. So I just I take caution in your first deal and just go to town and make sure you really know everything about that area and that property.
0: I guess speaking of the banks. It's one of the questions I had for you. And uh, obviously we've been doing that ourselves recently uh, when we managed to put our deal together uh, ourselves at, from our end. But uh, I mean, the banks are frankly speaking, a nightmare. Is there, is there anything, any advice that you would give to people? I think it's fair to say that you need to, you need to kind of lead the banks a little bit and, and make sure that your numbers are good and you know, you, you follow their rules and, and learn their rules. Uh, it's, I guess something that we did, we unfortunately, I'm self-employed, so we don't fit the normal bucket. So, so to speak. And that becomes you know, very, very difficult. And thankfully, we, we found a very good mortgage broker that was able to make it work for us. But um, is there any sort of solid advice you'd give to, I guess, I guess the average investor trying to, to get going when it comes to trying to get your finances in order to, to make this happen?
1: The best thing is is to start the process uh, with a couple of dry runs, and by that, I mean just get to know what the bank's requirements are. If you've found the perfect property and you want to go and buy it right away, and you've got you know so many weeks until it's it's going to be sold, and then you're only starting the conversation with the bank at that point. You're already way behind. and um, you know you've got guys that have a you know a good relationship with their bank manager. And the bank manager is confident in them. And for them, it's just a phone call. I mean, some of the some of the best deals that I did in my career, I basically picked up the phone and said, look, I need to borrow a million um, tomorrow. Is that okay? And they just say, okay, fine, you've got it. And that was because I had spent several years doing projects with them I I had you know I had paid off loans that I had borrowed and so you get to that point where they have real confidence in you and they uh, obviously it was a different time as well you know they were they were throwing the money out the door shoveling it out the door like there was no tomorrow but it was based on confidence in your reputation for doing what you said and if you if you're going to the bank for the very first time, you can expect a lot of pushback, a lot of questions, a lot of answering, you know, documentation, and it could just take weeks for that to take place. So I wouldn't wait until you found the deal, until you do that. I would start investigating that now. Go in, meet your bank, talk to them about the rules and regulations. Um, you know, what would you expect? How much could I be expected to borrow? What is the size of the deposit I'll be expected? And what is the kind of information that you're going to be looking for? And if you can meet that same guy again and again and again, uh, it'll get to the point where you you build up a bit of a rapport with him. And the guy sees that, you know, you've grown, you understand an awful lot more now. And yes, I think you're ready, you know, to borrow the money. And then you bring him a great deal that ticks all the boxes. And then you shouldn't have as much difficulty then, but, you know, certainly, covid nineteen now is going to add an element of uh, difficulty to it because everyone's just that little bit more nervous now at the moment.
0: now that's that's great advice, and uh, i I guess some of the, one of the experiences that we had was that they seemed to like to see this kind of regular savings just put into us almost put into a bank account or a savings account the same day each month the same amount and they seem to want 12 months of uh of records for that and you know being self-employed i would often have money going into the company as a as a capital because the company needed it and then coming out and so on there was no regularity and that made it very, very difficult. Thankfully, the uh, bank we went with were happy to use my voluntary pension contributions as, as a sign of regular savings. But had it not been for that, you know, it was something where we did have savings, but we just didn't make them regular enough. So it's kind of playing by their rules and just knowing that from day one. And that that, that could be a 12 month process if they want to see 12 months worth of um, worth of savings. So, you know, starting on that today, rather than waiting to, till you've got the deal is, is I think great. And I think that, that concept of going through for a dry run is, is quite a good one because then you're kind of sitting down and you know you, you're you coming up with a number of something you'd want to buy and just seeing what you actually need and you know when they when they say no at least you can ask them then well, what do i need to do to get a yes you know and then come back and they, and they will usually typically say i suspect they'll probably say come back in six months time and and try again so um, well
1: the other thing to remember is that you know if you're going to go out if you want to be an active property investor or developer or whatever You know, you don't, the first deal you come across is not the one that you're going to secure, is not the one that's necessarily the best one. I would be looking at deals all the time, I mean constantly, and you get to the point, you might look at a hundred deals and you might end up doing three of them Um, because you'll look at a hundred deals, maybe only 20 of them are any good. Um but by looking at a hundred, you now understand that okay, the value this value this represents value, and I know that because I've looked at these other eighty deals that didn't represent value the more the more you look at the more the good deals stand out, and you start to see patterns and you say, okay yeah i like I like how this deal is looking it's far better than the previous few that we looked at. And then you've got to understand that you're not alone in the market. There will be other competitive bidders trying to get this property. And so that's the next hurdle you've got to cross. You found the property, you've sifted through all the ones that aren't particularly good. Now you've got to go and actually competitively bid against somebody else. And that's where your banking relationship is so important, because if that guy that you're bidding against has already done all of that work with the bank, he's going to have the loan straight away. Whereas you might have to go and make an offer subject to finance or something like that, which just adds that element of uncertainty. And the person who's, you, you might even be offering more money, but if it's subject to finance, there's no certainty there. Whereas the guy that's offering a little bit less is able to give him the guarantee that no cash is, yeah, I've got the cash ready and the bank is here, you know, um, with a letter saying that your your loan is approved or whatever. That gives you that little bit of
0: advantage. I guess talk about that process a little bit because, you know, dealing with auctioneers and so on, it's quite a stressful a stressful thing. And, you know, we, we managed to, in, in the deal that we managed to do, and I guess similar to yourself, Gavin, I mean, we looked at so many deals uh, and, you know, had so many kind of run-ins with auctioneers and just found some of the auctioneers, frankly speaking, were you know, bordering on lying to us about some of the, the properties that we were looking at. How do you kind of, yeah, is there any advice that you would give when dealing with an auctioneer around kind of sussing them out? And I know some people will often say, oh, yeah, you know, that has some tips and tricks around putting an offer in. Um, you know, is, is there anything that you would do as kind of a safety bet or, or any advice you'd have there?
1: There's a lot of different types of people out there and it takes a while until you figure it out. And so reputation is everything, your reputation and the reputation of the people that you're working with. So anytime you tell somebody you're going to do something, like by all accounts, go ahead and do exactly what you said so that you develop a relationship as a person who of trust and integrity and somebody you can rely on. Uh, on the same side, you flip that around, you sort of say that's exactly what you want from the people around you. Now, auctioneers, I've met certain auctioneers who would have preferred People that they want to get the, the deal into the hands of it might be a friend or something like that. So you just have to be wary of that kind of stuff. And also, I mean, I'm not going to paint. You know, there there are obviously there's bad people out there. There's bad solicitors and there's bad auctioneers that will basically tell you whatever you want to hear to go and get you to buy the thing because he doesn't get paid unless the property actually secures. Uh, you know, unless he secures a buyer, and so. You know, there's a certain amount of motivation. So you need to make sure that the person you're dealing with is a person of integrity. And there's a lot of, I mean, I've got some fantastic relationships with guys going back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And they're guys that I, you know, trust absolutely for good advice. They wouldn't put me wrong because they know that I'll be back again. And when I come back again, I will, um, I, I'll basically give him another deal and I'll give him another transaction and we'll do something else together. So if he tells me this is not the one for you, Gavin, then I'll take his advice on that because I know that he has my best interests. Now, you don't always have that with a complete stranger for the first time. So it's important that you get to know. And and like we said about having a dry run, if you're in a situation where you've done this a couple of times, if if you're going out looking at 100 deals, you're obviously going to meet the same auctioneer several times. And you're going to end up in a situation where the guy is, bring. you know, you'll see from the pattern of the deals that you're looking at that this particular guy is bringing me a lot of good quality stuff. This other individual is bringing me a lot of crappy stuff that he's been unable to sell to other people. And so he's kind of offloading it on me.
0: To be honest, that's wonderful advice. And uh, I, I like what you mentioned there about the reputation, because I think sometimes we forget, and I, I think I've probably made this mistake, that exactly that that you're going to bump into these auctioneers time and time again and particularly if you're going back and forward and, and you're looking at 100 deals and so on and so there's no point kind of um yeah you know, burning the bridge on one deal and then having to you know another listen comes up and you go oh gosh i wouldn't mind having a look at that oh gosh look who the auctioneer is you know do i have to deal with that guy again so you know you're
1: you're only as good as your last deal and how you behaved in the last transaction and if you know a lot of people i have a, an acquaintance who who bought a property years ago and then he decided to sell it and he agreed to sell it to me and then he changed his mind and sold it to somebody else because they were offering more. But there was all of this messing where he, you know, he didn't want to tell me that he had got a better price and he was making all these excuses and it eventually comes out and, you and you, you know, it does burn that bridge and you suddenly realise, hmm, OK, that guy, you know, can't really trust him too well. So there, you know, you do have to thread carefully. Anytime there's money involved, you got to understand that money pressure makes people do things that is not necessarily, you know, what they would like to do, but they're kind of forced to do it. And um and you just got to bear that in mind. And it's the same with getting into business with partners and stuff. I mean, I've 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 had some fantastic partners that have really, you know, stood to me, but then I've gone into, you know, into difficult times and suddenly the pressure of the difficult times brings out something that's you never saw before in that partner. And you suddenly realize, whoa, you know, I am on my own here. This this guy does not have my interests at heart now any longer. It was all great when the deal, when the when the when the market was going great, but suddenly, the the guy is looking out for himself and nobody else. And you know, you've just got to be. You got this. Is why I say treat this business like it's a business. Uh, it's easy to start letting kind of the extra money that you are making. Make you a little bit soft and start to look at stuff, and you know, oh, yeah, you know I'll do this, and I'll do that. and And you start to get a bit um, less disciplined, and that can cost you. Um, so just treat it like a business, and I think you'll be well advised
0: if you don't mind, let's let's just talk about tenants a little bit. And uh, I'm assuming that you've you've got some property out there that that is tenanted. And, you know, given given how busy I suspect you are, you're probably not wanting to take a call at 9 p.m. at night because the toilet's broken. So do you typically, you know, some of your smaller deals, would you be looking to get a property manager in place or, you know, what advice would you give to people who maybe are starting out? And, you know, is it worth paying that 10% to get a property manager to look after a property or is it something that you would advise people to kind of do themselves?
1: Well, I think at the outset, if you're starting off in your career and you're you're at day one, then I think probably the best thing to do is to do all of that. Now, obviously, this is probably directed more to an active investor. If you're a passive investor and you've got like a full time job, I mean, I know plenty of guys that might be solicitors or accountants or whatever, and they want to make the investment, but they, you know, they have their full day of of work and so they can't be going off you know dealing with these kind of issues so in that situation yeah it makes sense go and get a property manager he'll deal with all the tenants and finding the tenant and dealing with all of the headaches that tenants might have but i think if you're if you're sort of wanting to create a career for yourself in this business i think it makes sense to do to start out by doing it all yourself because then you understand all of the issues that arise and you're better in a position then to know when a property manager comes along and says, I can do that for you, and it's going to cost you, say, 10% of your rent or whatever, you understand, well, I know what that time is costing me, and therefore I'm prepared to go and do that. I'm prepared to pay him that because it's my time is worth more than that 10% is worth. And so, you know, you don't know that, though, until you've actually been through it. Now, in my case, what I did when I started out is I, I, I got one property going, did it all myself, got another property going, did it all myself got a third and a fourth. And then it was only when I got around to the fourth that I started feeling the pressure of all of these things. And what I actually did was I hired a um, a personal assistant and that personal assistant then suddenly started to take over some of that extra stress and, and extra strain. And that freed me up to go and look for more deals and to go out and and, and add value to other properties. So, you know, it gets to that point where whether this assistant is somebody that can kind of come in and work actually staffed for you, or maybe you just go to a property estate management company and you sort of say to them, look, I'd like to give you these five properties, give me a deal on, you know, the management of all five of those and look after everything. And I just, I only want to hear from, you know, when when there's a new tenant to be decided upon. Um, because tenants are, I mean, I've had a tenant in a property for 18 years and Paid the rent absolutely religiously for 18 years. That's the perfect situation. He hardly ever called me. When he called me, it was because the dishwasher was broken and he wanted a new one. And I would organise that. I'd actually tell him, go and buy the new one, get it organised yourself, and, I'll just, and you can just deduct it from the rent that you're paying me. And it was self-managed, basically. And in the end, over 18 years, he paid me two and a half times more than the value of that property in rent. So he had actually paid for my house two and a half times and um, that was just the perfect deal now I've had other situations where tenants have stopped paying rent and when you ring them up they give you this sort of sob story but the reality is is that they were they you know they were using the rent for other stuff and I ended up going in to, to kind of have a talk with them and suddenly find that they've left the property and they left it in a terrible state and you know so you do have to vet your tenants very well don't overlook the fact that, you know, go and check out if he has a previous history with other landlords, talk to that other landlord, try to find out. Also, just a little tip, bear in mind that the landlord that the previous person had might be only delighted that they got rid of them and they, you know, they might not want to say something that would actually cause them to kind of Not get rid of them. So you do need to, you know, ask the right question and say, you know, would you be happy for this guy to rent from you again, and things like that, just to make sure that you're dealing with the right person. And also, COVID nineteen has obviously added a whole layer of of kind of concern because you've got jobs now that people can lose, and you've got people being furloughed, and so you just have to be a little bit more careful. One of the reasons that I got into commercial property is because. With commercial property, well, depending on this, the size of it and stuff, but usually it's four checks a year paid in advance, and that is the sum total of your involvement, and they're responsible for insuring and repairing the property, so you don't have any um, work to do on it, and so that is one of the reasons why commercial makes a lot of sense. Now, it has its drawbacks as well, but it, it can be far less hands-on in, in that kind of context.
0: So look, I've got one last question for you before uh, before we wrap up, and it's just on, I guess, on, on social housing and social housing in- initiatives and things like that. And uh, I know that, uh, for example, the Limerick City Council will often uh, advertise a deal or, or where you can get, you know, they will fill the tenant for you and manage the property for you. Have you got any thoughts? I've had both good and and bad experiences from that. From from listeners on the show, sort of reach out to me. Is that ever something that you've actually explored yourself, or would you have any advice on it as to why you should or shouldn't do it?
1: Well, I have some friends doing it. I haven't done it myself personally, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. But two of my friends have done some great deals with the local authority, and they've they've basically agreed they bought the pro- they bought a property or a piece of land and they did all of the stuff that they needed to do to get into a position where the local authority agreed to rent the property from them and they would put social um they would basically put people from a housing list into the property and you're not dealing with the tenant you're dealing with the, the local authority a lot of the time so they pay you this lump sum for all of the the properties that um, that you're renting to them and so that's been very lucrative um two of my friends did very well doing that so Uh, But personally, it's not something that I've gone down. Since I got into commercial property, I didn't really look at that. So I guess I'm not really the best person to ask.
0: No, thank Look, thanks, Kevin. Look, I just wanted to pick your brain in it because I do get a few questions on it. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. So, yeah, I mean, look, thank you so much. This, this has been fantastic, Kevin. You've, you've really given some, some great advice. And, uh, look, let's take the time to talk a little bit about, about your own podcast that I know you've only just started recently. So do you want to share a little bit about, uh, what the podcast is and, uh, and how you can find it?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, it's called Behind the Facade and uh, it's it's, I think I just uploaded the 12th episode. So we've been 12 weeks going and uh, it's going quite well. I'm getting some great feedback. I focus on the mental game or the, the whole mindset and behaviors that you need to succeed in the business. A lot of people go into kind of local issues and specifics. And that means that it's only really, uh, you know, relevant to people living in that particular area. And what I want is something that deals with the kind of universal truths of real estate investing or property investing and, and development. And so I go through, you know, the various lessons I've learned over my career. I've started bringing some guests on board now. In the next week or two, you'll start seeing guests. But the idea is, um, is less about specific locations and more about universal you know, um, how should you sort of think about certain deals? How should you structure your deals? And and the kind of universal stuff that you could use in Australia, that you could use in the US. It's not about, you know, Ireland specifically, although most of my advice is from Irish um, from Irish investment. But I have invested in the US. I've invested in Spain. I've built property in the Middle East and, uh, and I also started a deal in Africa, believe it or not. So I have a, a fairly wide experience around the place. And um, so I tried to bring some of that to the podcast. So that's behind the facade.
0: Yeah, look, I I think it's wonderful to to see this happening in in Ireland is is just so great. And uh, look, I know from the feedback from my own show, that uh, Irish listeners are desperate for, for Irish based content. So I'm more than happy to be linking to that in the show notes. And I hope that uh, a lot of the listeners will go and check it out because I think it's well worth it. Um, Gavin, really, honestly, uh, it's just been it's just been great. You've, you've given some great stuff. And I just think it's wonderful as well just to to see this happening in Ireland. The fact that you've made you've, you know, you've, you've made a success out of yourself from doing this for 25 years and uh, look well done on everything you've done. And I know it's been it's had it been a bit of a roller coaster at times. But, uh, you know, it sounds to me like you've stood the test of time and uh you know fair play
1: thanks very much michael it's been a pleasure and uh, good luck with your podcast too
0: excellent thank you so much cheers gavin i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you're a big fan of the show why not become an irish fire podcast member for free members receive access to inside information that isn't shared on the podcast as well as regular updates such as a monthly newsletter to become a member visit www.firepodcast.ie.